we have in anorexia a perfect animal model. Other animals, as well as humans, do the exact same thing when they're starving. And those animals are also creatures that evolved the way early humans evolved, as omnivorous, opportunistic, nomadic foragers. So following the game. So rats and pigs will also stop eating and move restlessly if they lose weight. You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello, welcome to the Eating Disorder Recovery Podcast. This week you're going to hear the conversation that I had with Shan Geisinger. Now, I reached out to Shan because it can be quite motivating when you understand a little bit more as an adult about the illness and especially if you, like me, have struggled with the idea that this is something that one inflicts on oneself because one wants to be thin. So I actually um, started to look into migration because of my compulsive exercise. And actually the first thing that I think got me really interested in all this stuff was learning about um, experiments that had been done with rats who were starved in laboratories and then those rats started displaying the same sorts of behaviors as I had done (laughs) when I had um, been in energy deficit. So I started researching and I came across the adaptively famine hypothesis. I didn't really edit this conversation very much. I just sort of let it run. So enjoy. Here's Dr. Geisinger. My first research career was in evolutionary biology. I studied Western meadowlarks breeding biology. And then I decided, and I taught um, community college for about five years before I decided that I'd like to become a therapist. At that time, I became interested in eating disorders as an evolutionary problem. When one of the first people who came to see me was a woman who had had anorexia nervosa for about five years. She developed it at 18 when she'd gone on a diet with to keep her best friend company and turned out to be really good at it. Um, her weight just kept falling off. And she, at that time, and this was in the 1980s, she be, um, believed in everything you re- read, said this was about mothering. This was over-involved controlling mothers. But her mother wasn't over-involved or controlling. Um, she had a really good relationship with her mom. And her mom tended to, was busy with the younger kids and tended to leave her to herself. So that didn't fit. Uh, the other part that was believed at that time was that it had something to do with perfectionism. So we, uh, you know, found that right away. She's very perfectionistic, highly um careful. She was a hairdresser and very known in the community for doing beautiful work. Um, and her patients were, or her clients were very patient with her about uh, when she had to call in sick because of her anorexia. Um, but she kept working and uh, trying, we both tried to find some psychological reason that she was afraid of eating or was unable to eat. She told me, I want to eat, but I can't. My body won't let me. And I I couldn't figure out why a starving person's body would ever (laughs) not let them eat. That seems like about as basic as letting you breathe or drink water. Um, But I believed her. And at one point, in fact, she got ill with um, a virus and lost a little more weight. And at that point, she felt prohibited even from drinking water. And that made so little sense (laughs) because why on earth would you feel that way? You know, you might think that you wanted to be thin for beauty, but why would you think you shouldn't drink water? You know, it felt like a kind of, it felt biological to me. And I I just thought about it and thought about it for years. Um, Not too long after that, I did, uh, went to Yale to do postdoctoral work in the eating disorders clinic there, Um, worked with Lisa Silverstein, um, wonderful uh, eating disorders um, person, and we did research where we actually tried to find 
um, the correlates that were expected between mothering style and diagnosis of bulimia or anorexia. And what we found instead is that there was absolutely none, that um, uh, Craig Johnson had uh, suggested or believed, proposed that mothers of, pe of people who develop anorexia were withholding and critical and um, perfectionistic, and that mothers of um, women who developed bulimia were um, emotionally withholding, and um, so that people with, with bulimia were feeding a hungry heart and people with anorexia were saying, you can't uh, cram this down my throat, basically. But we didn't find those correlations. And we didn't publish, try to publish the study because we thought maybe the problem was with our measures, which is what happens to a lot of, of uh, you know, negative findings. Um, in any case, I, I kept seeing people there uh, who would tell me that they understood the reason that they had stopped eating. Uh, one woman had been sexually approached by her father. Um, another one identified it with her high standards and control. But understanding that didn't help people get better. Um, so whatever they, however they understood their symptoms or their feelings, it didn't help them uh, recover. And um, I was thinking about this and I thought, well, wait, if you were a starving hunter-gatherer band um, in the Paleolithic, you had two choices. You know, most starving people hunker down and wait out the famine. But you also, it also would have been adaptive at times to search for food elsewhere. Now, certainly nomadic people are always traveling around after the game and following, you know, uh, following the food sources. But there would have been times when um, all the food was gone in a particular area and that to get to new food, you'd have to climb mountain ranges or traverse deserts or uh, maybe even waterways, oceans, and so on. And we know that people were amazing migrators. Before historic times, humans were already had already made it to every single habitable place on Earth, except for Antarctica, which isn't habitable, really. Um, and so it's clear that people kept moving, 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 and that those who found new continents with prey that were naive to humans' group hunting styles had um, benefited tremendously, that they were the founders of new populations. So even though the trait seems very maladaptive, it was super adaptive at one time, perhaps. Um, so I started to just kind of, I thought, well, that makes sense of all the symptoms. And I remembered that many animals uh, have to turn off eating in order to migrate. So, you know, whales who give birth in warm water and then um, go all the way up to the Arctic. Um, gray whales, for example, uh, don't eat the whole time that they are um, journeying up there, even though the moms are feeding their babies this incredibly uh, dense and high caloric uh, milk that they basically pump into their mouths. So the moms lose tremendous amount of weight. So I thought, okay, well, this would make sense that in order to migrate, you'd want to, um, you might have to, when people are starving, food becomes the only thing they can think about. And, um, you know, you're obviously, if you see a few little dried up berries, or you're going to go for them. But and so you wouldn't get very far if you were trying to migrate. So that's why animals turn off eating, uh, because it's distracting. And when I suggested this to one of my clients, I said, you know, I think we tried to figure out why she couldn't eat. And she had theories and they weren't helping her eat. And I said, you know, I think maybe this is an ancient adaptation that helped your ancestors migrate. I said, I think your body is trying to migrate. and she loved it. It made so much sense to her. It it allowed her to ignore those strong feelings that feel like they're part of you. You know, they feel like they're coming from you. That's why we make all this sense about it, you know.
So that really helped. And then I started to look for, well, there must be other people who've come to this idea and who there must be neuroscience research on it. And I started looking and sure enough, um, turns out that uh, neuroendocrinologists had noticed for a while that hunger signals, a few hunger signals are turned down and satiety is turned up everywhere throughout the body so that people get full quickly and it's unpleasant to eat over satiety. So that helped them to not, to not migrate. Um, I kept um, finding more and more evidence that made sense to me in an evolutionary explanation. And I kept suggesting this to people. And in uh, 2003, I published um, a theory with showing that the, what we call the adapted to flea famine hypothesis had was consistent with more of what is known about anorexia than any of the other theories that had been proposed. It explained why starving people would be afraid of eating, why they would be hyperactive, why they would look at their fat, uh, thin bodies and see fat, because that would give them confidence to travel. Why these three things, hyper, uh, hyperactivity, body image exaggeration or body fat uh, exaggeration and um, uh, resisting eating all, all were almost always found together. Um, now, people in the field had attributed hyperactivity to a desire to lose weight, but it's always been there from the earliest descriptions. Um, Aristotle mentioned a woman who was uh, restless and active and and existed on air, but but because of the uh, bias for psychological explanations, people had interpreted hyperactivity as as a desire to lose more weight. But there are many 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 theories that have been given for why people with anorexia uh, want to lose weight that have changed depending on what they think women are preoccupied about about pardon me um so in the when it was first described in the 1880s the doctors thought it was hysteria and maybe hysterical fear of sex uh freud signed on to that one he was sure of it um later they thought it was a fear of being a grown-up of wanting to regress to a childlike state in the mid mid 1900s a psychiatrist named hilda Brook listen to these miserable young girls and she decided that it that they were earnest and sincere uh they'd been seen uh very uh contemptuously really by psychiatrists before that um but she said look these are victims these are victims of a controlling mother they're trying so hard to be good little girls that they are um are doing everything their mother says. Their mothers are over-involved in their life. And eating is the only thing they can control. And this was actually a more compassionate view of the patients, but of course a way less compassionate one of the parents. Uh, and of course, if you have a child starving to death, you get pretty controlling. But as, <laughs> as is often the case, um, people see the pathology in the illness and think that that was there before. And in fact, a, a classic example of that that goes on today is that people see um, anxiety and rigidity and they say, oh, these people were always anxious and rigid. They were always, um, you know, that was their, the thing that caused the anorexia. Well, what we know about starving people from a number of studies, and particularly the Minnesota starvation study that was done at the end of World War II, uh, the key study is that starvation makes everyone more rigid, uh, paranoid, psychotic-looking, hypochondriacal, um, controlling, and anxious. <laughs> that was the other word, and depressed. <laughs> so when we're seeing people who've lost fifteen percent of what of their normal body weight, say. They, you know, it's easy to say, oh, well, this is the, this is the trait that 
cause them to develop anorexia. They can't, um, they're afraid of, of getting fat. But the truth is that if you look at those very same traits, um, the, what we know about people with anorexias uh, and before and after is that they do tend to be high achieving, conscientious, and kind of tightly wound. Some of them are, do have some uh, autism spectrum traits, not, not all. Um, not all, even not most, have a pre-existing anxiety disorder. And we continue to this very day in eating disorders to see these traits as uh, risk factors and bad things, even though every single one of us <laughs> is more on this side of the trait, us being researchers and, and people who study anorexia. We're way more on the anorexia end of the continuum when it comes to concern about being on time, concerned about doing well, pushing yourself to be as good as you can be. And Walter Michelle, uh, a um, psychologist at Stanford, 40 years ago, gave started studying self-control. And, and he gave these kindergartners this marshmallow test where he said, uh, we'll give you two marshmallows. Here's one marshmallow. You can look at it. You can eat it now if you want to. But if you wait, we'll give you two. And then um, he went ahead and happened to because his daughter was in that class. And he would over over the years ask her his daughter, you know, oh, how's this kid doing? How's that kid doing? Because they found there was a big difference, you know, high self-control and low self-control. She turned out those with high self-control did much better over time in in school. They did better on their SATs. They did better in college, they did better in careers, and it turns out that self-control is even more powerful as, as a predictive trait of success in marriage, as well as um, career in school, than is intelligence. So for the most part, these people are the people you'd want to hire in your job. They're the people you'd want to marry or have as friends. These are exceptional exemplary people but by the time researchers saw them in in their studies they looked pretty darn crazy but they're crazy about two very specific things they look at their body and they hallucinate fat the only thing they hallucinate and it's only hallucinating extra fat so that's pretty specific that should shout evolution to somebody because if it was a disorder like schizophrenia, you would expect them to hallucinate all kinds of things and sometimes see themselves as as um, thinner than they are um, or sometimes see fat on you or, you know, obviously it's such a narrow but such an extreme hallucination that Hildebrook said it's greater even than schizophrenic hallucinations. So that's pretty, pretty weird uh, and crazy. It's pretty crazy. And so when people, you know, you see somebody who's starving themselves to death and refuses to eat and it's easy to pathologize them. But that got labeled, by the way, that trait of conscientiousness got labeled as harm avoidance. And it looks, as I say, it looks kind of dysfunctional when you see it in someone who's starving. But what harm avoidance also means is that you don't want to disappoint people. You don't, you don't let people down. You know, you're the person who goes and does what has to be done even when you don't want to because you don't want to hurt people's feelings. Okay, so right now I've been collecting a, um, neuroscience research coming from both uh, human studies and, and with, neuro, with uh, imaging studies. We have amazingly... Um, amazing findings, and they keep being re replicated all over the world. And what people are finding is that the insula, the part of the insula that's involved in experiencing hunger and experiencing taste are hypofused. They're underactive. And so the insula is involved in helping us interpret signals from the body. So if you have a growling stomach, 
you interpret that as not pleasant and as a sign that you should eat. Well, if that gets damped down, then you might have growling from your stomach, but you don't experience it that way. Taste is turned down so that it's not um, that delicious or exciting to think about eating. The part of the brain, these are already people high in self-control, but the part of the brain that's responsible for showing self-control and resisting temptation is hyperactive when people are asked to, you know, look at food stimuli. And it turns out that that actually generalizes that uh, increased self-control, generalizes to other things too. Sometimes people are getting like the best grades they've ever gotten, um, doing incredibly well on their school because they're showing amazing self-control in all parts of their life right now, even as they're starving, which is, of course, very, very unusual for a starving person. That's not what normally happens. Uh, At the same time, the part of the brain that's responsible for um, rewarding, the rewarding aspects of food is, is under activated. And so people, it's not that rewarding to eat as it normally would with someone who's starving. And a part of the brain that's responsible for for primitive fear gets activated when people are are faced with food. So they actually feel, many people feel afraid of eating. Or they feel like, it's not right for me. You know, you go ahead, but that's not right for me. In addition to all these wonderful studies in humans, there are, we have in anorexia, a perfect animal model. Other animals, as well as humans, do the exact same thing when they're starving. And those animals are also creatures that evolved the way early humans evolved, as omnivorous, opportunistic, nomadic foragers. So following the game. And what, so rats and pigs will also stop eating and move restlessly if they lose weight. And we discovered this in pigs because um, consumers wanted leaner meat, and so we bred for leanness in pigs. And so 6% of these lean bread, bread pigs, if the piglets, when they're weaned from their mom or around about that time, they get, uh, there's a, hier- a lot of hierarchical bullying that goes on in pigs. And if they're the ones that get kind of pushed aside from the food trough or from the mom's teat, and they lose a little weight from that, they'll stop eating and they'll just paste their pin and they'll eat straw, which is really interesting. It's like eating rice cakes, maybe. You know, you want to eat something, but you're not supposed to eat food. So you eat straw. So um, uh, we haven't done much research on pigs. again. In fact, any research, this all comes from people who raise pigs uh, because we've seen this as a, this psychologically caused illness caused by uh, fear of gaining weight. Uh, but we've known since 1953 that rats, if you starve them to make them more uh, motivated to learn a maze or something, some learning task, and if they happen to be housed with a running wheel, that they would start running on that wheel, ignore their food, and run themselves to death. We've known that since 1953. So you would have hoped that someone would have figured this out, and someone did actually in the 1980s, but they talked about it in such an obscure way, and whenever they were cited, it was cited not for the conclusions they drew, which is the reason rats do this is to find food elsewhere. But they talked, they were learning psychologists and they talked about it in a really arcane way that kind of felt tautological, where they said, well, running makes you want to run more and therefore. Yeah, well, at least they didn't say that the rats were just trying to get on the cover of Vogue magazine or something. Exactly. No, no, they didn't. No. And and yeah, but in any case, to me, it's like, and to some others, I, I imagine it's like and to you. I think you said it's like, how on earth could we have missed this? This is so obvious. And yet for people in the field, 
um, they are to this day the DSM five says that uh, anorexia is due to a persistent restriction in energy intake leading to significantly low body weight. Even though we know that many people come to anorexia accidentally, they lose weight from maybe their prepubescent growth spurt, and then they are doing cross country or something and lose more weight or doing ballet or whatever. And they uh, lose a little more weight and whoosh, they're down the rabbit hole. And people who didn't care about weight loss are suddenly terrified of gaining a few pounds. Um, and the other thing that DSM says is that it's due to an undue influence of body shape and weight on self-evaluation. And this is just a historical because so before the 1960s, people rarely gave uh, fear of getting fat or not wanting to get fat as the reason for not eating. They gave other things. They just said, well, my body doesn't want it, or it upsets my stomach, or I don't need food. Um, in the uh, early medieval times, the church, uh, Catholic church had so many fasts that if you were a pious, conscientious, high-achieving young girl, and uh, followed all those fasts and you went through puberty, you uh, were really at risk to develop anorexia. And they understood their amazing abilities to not have to eat and to be incredibly active as a sign that they were Christ-like. They had this divine connection with Christ. I suspect that people in the Pleistocene also saw their exceptional abilities as mystical. And but they would have understood them as this is to for me to help my tribe find food. So nowadays, of course, since um, since um, uh, standards have dropped so much that um, that uh, the ideal weight is actually an anorexic level of thinness. Not that all models are anorexic, but that if many people lost as much weight as or had the BMI of models, they would develop anorexia if they have those genes. So, so that now that's how people understand it. And and while the fourteen-year-old cohort often come to anorexia and accidentally, some do diet and come to it. The eighteen-year-old cohort usually, um, you know, gained some weight, got freaked out, and like my first client. Um, found out they were really good at dieting and the weight just kept coming off. But that was absolutely my own experience. I didn't, you know, I didn't want to be thin or skinny, but I want, I, I decided I needed to lose weight to actually be the right weight for a horse that I was riding. And I only wanted to lose five pounds. And then it was just, I just kept going. There was just no desire to stop dieting after a couple of days the first couple of days, I would say I was like anybody else that might diet. I was cranky and I wanted to eat more. And I was just like, oh, this is sucks. I don't like dieting. Um, after that, I settled in. I was, you know, I was like, oh, this feels really good. Mm -hmm. Keep going. Mm -hmm. Keep going. I'm good yes. at it. Yes. So if you don't understand where that's coming from and you're seeing more fat on your body than is there, it keeps you going down. So, so the thing about rats, to get back to the rats, is that they... They're a totally perfect animal model, and you know people have used rats for all kinds of human diseases, and they use them for obesity, and no one has you know any concern about that. But um, and there has there has been this small cohort of people who've all along been doing the same kinds of studies on or similar kinds of studies on rats. But the thing with rats is that you can sacrifice them, as they say, slice their brains see the neuroendocrine changes right there and work with rats and work with uh, looking at the um, uh, cerebral spinal fluid and other more indirect things in people um, shows that it's pretty much the same in rats and people. And what's been become clear in these studies also is that what causes anorexia is not psychology, it is weight loss. It's weight loss. It's a critical drop in leptin. And if you treat rats who have started to run excessively with leptin, they 
become less hyperactive. If you treat humans, they become less hyperactive. Unfortunately, leptin, uh, which is that that hormone that tells the body, the brain, how much fat you have stored, uh, when it raises, we tend to want to eat less. And so the hyperactivity is this response to go find food, but the raising of leptin levels also may cause people to eat less. So if you've got to guess balance, whether um, the biggest problem is hyperactivity, which it is in some people. Right. So so giving someone leptin can cause them a less lack of appetite. Uh, that's correct. Yes. Thank you. But it will make them rest a bit more. Yes, exactly. Mm. Yeah. It's a bit of a catch 22, isn't it? Well, yeah, I think, I mean, I think it, it did finally make it through the FDA. And so it's available. And I think that there are probably people for whom it's the way to go. You know, people who are adults, you can't stop them from exercising. They want to stop exercising, but they can't. I would have been in that category, I think. I could force myself to eat with much greater ease than I could force myself not to exercise. So mm-hmm. I, I would have been able, I think, had, had I been given something that reduced my desire to exercise, regardless of my lack of appetite, I would have been able to force feed myself with greater ease than so I think yeah. for some people that would absolutely be the case. But not for all. Some people it's the opposite way around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree. A couple other things I want to say. One is we hear a lot about evidence-based. And evidence-based has been misused in anorexia treatment. Uh, people uh, claim that cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT is evidence-based for anorexia. And in fact, a study that compared specialized CBT treatment with the control group found the control group did better. That continued, by the way. They followed up, I think, about eight years later, and it's still true. And the thing is that cognitive behavioral therapy for bulimia made a humongous difference, a huge difference. But the thing is that if you're trying to convince someone with anorexia not to fear fat or not not to care so much about her body weight for her her body size for her self esteem it's kind of insulting uh, mm-hmm. because, yep. yeah because <laughs> that's not what this is about and it wasn't how it started for many people and even if it did you know we're people are went on a diet because everybody around them is telling them they should i think that one of the most insulting things that i could be told when when i was incredibly emaciated underweight was that i needed to love myself i mean yeah. it's just what are you talking about? <laughs> I never had a problem with self-esteem either, but anyway, that's another thing. Yeah. Uh, no, you feel so misunderstood, I think, and, and maligned, and like they look at you like you're this vain creature who just would die to be thin. Um, so, but the thing is that what they've done, the way the little sleight of hand they do, um, the CBTers, is that they say, well, actually, all eating disorder because people will move between anorexia into bulimia if it lasts long enough. They say, well, it's really just all an eating disorder and CBT works for bulimia. So, voila, it's evidence-based for anorexia. Um, and people will say you cannot use a treatment that's not evidence-based. Well, that one's a bad treatment and it doesn't even get discussed that way. But also... In my case, how on earth am I going to get somebody to, I mean, I've tried to, I've gone through the NIMH grant process without success because this is a paradigm busting theory. And the people who are evaluating my grants are part of the old paradigm. They weren't going to say, oh, yeah, let's give money here to study this brand new idea that says that what we've been doing. We all have our biases, right? So let's talk about how, um, you know, you, you, you and I have spoken before and you know that I absolutely, um, the reason that I like this um, adaptively famine perspective is because it makes sense to me um, and it's, uh, it, it, I feel that it's more scientifically based than a lot of other things because um, we have evolution and many animal models to show us how these things work how the processes work physiologically in other mammals. Um, I am also, um, you know, I believe in the genetic uh, locus for anorexia as well. So it fits in with that. But I I have to admit the the main, the, the fundamental reason why I like this perspective 
is I did like I I thought about it myself and then mm-hmm. researched it and found you'd already written about it. So it seemed like such common sense to me that, you know, I, I was sort of reading various my studies and then other migration studies and probably the same way that you did was thinking, wow, I, I, I'm just like that rat. I mean, not you, but you see people with anorexia and you thought like these are really, these people are displaying symptoms of the animal models that, that we know about um, migration and, and other starvation responses as well. And I could see, yeah, I could see all of those traits in my own self. You know, I was the rat that would, yes, I would, if I'd been a rat, I would have been running in that wheel and you could have put food in my cage and I would have continued to run in that wheel. That absolutely was my life when I had anorexia. So that's how I found your paper was I started Googling anorexia and migration and then it came up and I was like, oh, wow, somebody's written all about this. And then I thought, and why didn't I know about it? <laughs> you know why is there not a website that you've got all of these eating disorder websites sort of um that just information on eating disorders why have i never seen this why have i always seen that oh this is a response to you know, trauma or oh this is a response to parents or oh this is a need for control i see all of those things that don't actually have much scientific backing yet mm-hmm. i've never seen this as an explanation anywhere actually um, which is why I got in contact with you. <laughs> well, let's see. I guess you're asking why, when it was published in 2003, hasn't have have not people cited it? If you go and look at the citations, there's a lot of them. Actually, a lot of people have cited it, but they're not the people who are the leaders in eating disorder research. They ignore it and hope I'll go away. I guess uh, I did though start because I had no success with getting anyone to collaborate with me in the U.S., I did start a collaboration with a anorexia treatment center in Italy. Uh, it's part of the public health system there. And one of the things that I noticed when I first started to explain this to people is that it made a difference in their commitment. It helped them to commit to gain weight because it made sense of why they were afraid of, gain, of eating. And it it explained why it was so damn hard, why their bodies. What it helps, I think, with most is especially because I work with adults and most of them have been through traditional treatment for maybe 20 years already. They know what a a, a typical psychoanalyst is going to say to them. They they could actually teach those classes themselves at this point. Um, But and it hasn't worked (laughs) because they're still seeking treatment. But it takes away all of that rubbish about trying to find the underlying need or trying to find the underlying cause of the illness. And it just makes them understand that they don't need to, they they don't need to do that. What they need to do is they need to eat food. They need to get out of energy deficit first and foremost, and they need to work on rewiring the neural processes that the illness has set up in their brain. And that's, that's all like a present that that's all like a present. You can do this today. You can take action today. It's not worrying about, well, can we remember what happened when you were 11 and, um, you know, like work through that. It's saying, this is what you need to do today. X, Y, and Z, eat, you know, increase what you're eating, um, go against these food rules. We can actually build from that. We can do something with it when we're not looking for that underlying reason. And we're just actually helping somebody do what they need to do that day in order to come out of energy deficit. I I was in quasi recovery when I um, started sort of actually even reading about the genetic, the early sort of genetic research and, and those sorts of things. And even that really helped me because mm-hmm. it was just like, yeah. it, it really helped me not have to sort of pussyfoot around. And it can take away a fear element. It took away a fear element for me because when I didn't know I had so much information telling me that my illness was due to some underlying big rifts in my psyche or something like that. There was, even though I didn't quite believe it, there was a bit of a fear element as to, well, what if I eat? Am I going to go crazy? Is, am I going to blow up? You know, like if, if this, apparently this illness is here to protect me from something. So do I need to take a lot of caution as I start eating? Well, um, cause well, whatever, whatever it's protecting me against and to understand like, oh, no, there's, there's, there's no deep underlying reason. I can eat, I can get myself out of energy deficit. Not that that was easy, but <laughs> yes, 
it took away a lot yeah. of questions. And, and I think that that period, that that feeling that you have also that at, that's at the bottom of or that underlies the starvation too, is that if you did let yourself, you would get as you would blow up. Because one of the things that's going on is that you still have high levels of ghrelin, which is a hunger hormone. And you, so you're aware of, I, I feel like I might have bottomless hunger. Um, and that now and then you fact slip into that. And that's what causes binging. But if, when you know that that's a normal part of the process of recovery. Absolutely. That you go through a period when you're eating everything in sight, and that's fine because, as you, I think, said on one of your podcasts, when the, um, when you get to your healthy weight, because because those hormones level out, you know, so the the extreme hunger go. That's a lot. I think one of the biggest fears that I I get asked about and all the time comes up a lot, and I know that people listening to this will 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 have this if they're in recovery is. I restrict because I feel like if I didn't restrict, I would eat the entire house. And that is because of those hormone levels that are saying and giving you f- feedback to the brain saying, you're really underweight. You need to eat a ton of food. And those, are, you know, and then the anorexia brain is saying, that's terrifying. And if you do that, you're just going to eat and eat forever. And we say you will eat and eat and eat for a long time. Don't be afraid of that. But it will stop when your body reaches equilibrium because your hormone levels will level out. And so that desire, whatever hormones are there that are causing that desire to eat the entire house, they don't last forever because as you move out of energy deficit, there's no require those hormones don't need to be there asking you to do that. Yeah, and to know that, that that's, those aren't emotional, allow your body to be where it wants to be. Don't worry about restricting. Um, don't worry about dieting ever again because it only makes things worse. And allow your body to be heavier because that's I mean, fighting your genes is never going to pay off when it comes to energy regulation. Mm-hmm. So if you, if there's most people I think that are listening to this, well, obviously if they're listening to the eating disorder recovery podcast, they have an interest in eating disorder recovery. Um, anybody who is in eating disorder recovery right now might be thinking, okay, well, how, Okay, how do I how do I use this information, and how do I how do I take away what I've listened to, and maybe apply it to something that I'm doing in my recovery right now? And for some for some people, I think it will be completely obvious to them. They're like, okay, I understand. But you know, maybe if if you if you have anything, a couple of points that you think that you'd like to say to somebody listening. You bet. Well, there's a a, a few things. One is to um to know that. Um, anorexia is I think an archetype or an instinct like um, being an athlete like being a warrior um, like being a mother like being a leader um, a teacher a healer that we humans come into the world like every other mammal replete with not with a blank slate, but with many instincts that get uncovered or um, develop at the appropriate time, and it's signaled by hormones. So, you know, to get an animal to leave off its pleasant life of eating and hanging out and to reproduce is a kind of tough thing because it's it's dangerous it's time consuming it's exhausting you know who would ever become a parent uh in the animal world or in the human world if we weren't pushed by our hormones and it makes you feel like being a parent is is a sublime wonderful thing um of course before that it makes sex feel like a sublime wonderful thing <laughs> but but you know being a parent feeding caring for nurturing that infant um is pushed by this feeling of of having an important mission and anorexia is like that just as for example if people were being called up to war and you know a terrible 
you know, war had had broken out and, you know, the enemy, the evil enemy is attacking, you know, the homeland. And you were not allowed to go to war. You're a young man. You're not allowed to go to war. It would feel wrong to you. You'd feel wrong. Um, Even though you're likely to go to war and be killed, you know, we do these things like we do, like people do anorexia because it feels like a higher calling in part. And when you lose that higher calling or when you give up anorexia because you say, look, this is killing me and I want to be healthy and I want to. I want to go on and have children or I want to go on and have a life other than anorexia. There will be a feeling of loss of that mission of that um, sense of calling. And so we as therapists, I think you, I know you're not crazy about therapy, but I hope I'll send you my <laughs> therapy book and I hope you'll see that their therapy done right can be really uh, much like coaching done right. <laughs> I absolutely identify with that. One of the, one of the, there were many things that were very difficult about recovery. So I'll just put that out there. But one of those was I lost something I was really good at. It, I got reward for energy deficit. It felt good. And I re- some days in recovery, there was just a, can't just for one day come away from this day feeling like I've done something well, because that's what makes me feel I get a reward at the end of the day when I know I'm in energy deficit. And in recovery, you can't have that. You can't have it even for a day. You can't even have it for half a day. You can't get that reward and feel good about And it's wrong that it's not right that it feels good and it gives that reward, but that's just the truth. It feels great to restrict. And I'm, I, you know, that recovery was difficult just because I felt that was the only thing I was really damn good at. And Mm -hmm. I didn't have that and nothing else felt as rewarding for me. I mean, of course, as I sustained recovery and sustained um, out of energy deficit, my brain developed other things and other skills that it gave me reward for. And looking back, I can't even imagine that I, I got reward for energy deficit. My brain is out of those woods right now, but I still know how it felt. And I still know how in recovery, it did feel like somebody had gutted me somewhat, just taken out something that was very instinctual to me. Beautifully said. Yeah. You know, the other thing, I guess, and you emphasize this a lot, is is that I don't believe people, and we have these genes because people survived. They didn't starve to death in, in the Paleolithic. And I think that it's because the whole grateful tribe helped them to refeed. And I think that, you know, certainly the stuff we did, we being the mental health world in separating children from the people who love them most is just, you know, curls your hair. I mean, it's so upsetting. Think about the suffering and death that resulted from that. Um, But even now people, because we shame people with anorexia uh, about being vain, um, we, we need to, I think, recognize that uh, people like you are just essential. Uh, coaches, friends, um, family groups, feast. The forum has been probably saved more lives than all the. One of them. One of them right here. Yeah. 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 It, no, it's, it's peer support is is crucial, and so that's something I, I did. I picked up reading from from you was saying that in times of famine, it would be that maybe a tribe would move and then it would be customary to have a large feast and it would be rude to reject that feast. So right. even the anorex- people, individuals with anorexia would be kind of just via community love and support, really, yes, be, be pushed and, into eating again. And if you understood your symptoms in the context of helping find food, then you would also understand, oh, that's not needed now you know, which would make it easier. Huge thank you to Shan Geisinger for coming and talking to me today. As you can probably tell, I'm quite uh, intrigued by the adaptive plea famine perspective on anorexia. And um, we talked about motivation to recover in the sort of later part of that podcast. 
I sort of began thinking about the genetics and evolutionary perspectives on anorexia nervosa and the, well, I, 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 I guess more at the beginning of the, the, the end of my recovery, because um, I'd been in recovery but not gaining any weight for some time and so there then was a point when I really started to eat without restriction and that was the beginning of the end when I started to read those studies on mice who developed anorexia symptoms and I began to think to myself well this may just be a genetic evolved response and if it's that then although it feels wrong to eat to some extent um I'm going to have to do it. Although it feels scary to eat, I'm going to have to do it because I need to put on weight to get out of this. And that's not to say it then suddenly became easy, but it did actually help overcome the fear because motivation to recovery is a funny concept to me. I'm going to assume here that everybody is motivated to recover. If you're listening to this podcast, you're motivated to recover. We can all be really motivated to recover, but if that motivation is completely swamped with fear, it looks like it isn't there at all because you don't make any changes, you don't make it take any action, you don't make any progress. So then people say, well, you're obviously not motivated. You can be as motivated as you want. If the fear that you feel overrides that is greater than that, then that motivation just gets suffocated. And so for me, it helped reduce the fear when I thought of it as a more of an evolved genetic response. And it overcame the fear when I knew that of course it feels wrong for me to eat because my, my, my brain and body have for some reason <laughs> decided that that's the case. Of course it feels wrong and of course it's scary. But when I knew somewhere in there that this doesn't mean anything, it's just a genetic response. It doesn't mean anything. That really helped me overcome that fear when I could say that fear doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean that something's going to harm me if I eat. And so that, I think, is how we increase motivation to recover by reducing fear. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. And if you would like us to discuss anything in particular, then you can email me at info at You can get in touch with me via the website also, and that's tabithafarrar.com. And you can also tweet at me. My Twitter handle is at love underscore fat underscore. Look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, cheers and cheerio.